Well, good morning. It is good to be with you, whether you are joining us here in person or whether you are joining us online. I want to say welcome and thank you for being with us at church today. My name is Tyler. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Central. Whether you're a Christian or you're here in this room or watching online or you're, and you're not a Christian, it, it's pretty universal that we just don't love talking about money. And yet we find ourselves this morning, we're in this series called Practices. As we are in this Lenten season, journeying towards Holy Week, this is a season of self-reflection and self-examination. And so this series practices, we're looking at these different things that we think are important for us in our Christian walk, in our faith. If we want to be made and formed into the image of Christ, we think that these things are important things to think about and do. Things like studying, reading, worship, serving, And today we're talking about sharing, giving, money. I don't know why, but we just don't love talking about money. It's one of those awkward, uncomfortable things. It's like, your money is your business and my money is my business, so I'll let you do whatever you want and you just let me do what I want and we'll just be happier that way. We don't have to talk about it, we don't have to think about it. You just keep your business to yourself and I'll keep my business to myself, right? Like there are these unspoken rules, like you don't ask somebody how much they make right? I don't go up to you and say, hey, how much did you buy your house for? Those are just things that we don't talk about because it's just what we do. It's uncomfortable and awkward. And yet, I found myself this week as I was preparing for this morning, I found it helpful for me to slow down, to slow down and to rethink and reconsider some things as it comes to giving and sharing and money for my, for my faith. I know if you grew up in church like me, when we talk about giving, what we talk about is tithing typically, right? We're talking about you know, tithing, giving God 10%. And let me just stop for a moment and say that you as a church are generous and faithful in your giving. And I want to say thank you for that. In a year that has been unpredictable and a little bit uncertain, You have remained faithful and generous givers. And because of that, we have been able to provide and partner with some local organizations to provide some incredibly necessary things in these days. And that is because of you. And so I want to say thank you for that. But tithing is is, is a good thing. It's an important thing. It's that practice that reminds us that everything we have, everything we receive, comes from a God who loves us and gives us good gifts. If it, I remember growing up, and I can remember it so clearly, in our, in our dining room, uh, the west wall had all these built-in shelves. And in the very corner of the dining room, uh, there was a shelf right next to a phone that actually plugged into the wall. And on that shelf, me and my siblings, we each had three small mason jars. One for spending, one for saving, and one for tithing. And so every two weeks when I would get my allowance, I would put 10% in tithe, 30% in save, and 60% in spend. And I don't remember exactly what my allowance was. Let's just say for easy math that it was $10 every two weeks. I think it was not that high. I don't I think it's a little steep. Uh, but let's just say $10 every two weeks. A dollar straight into tithe, $3 right into save, and $6 right into spend. And, and some of you will probably like me, before I could get the lid on that spend jar, that $6 was gone. It goes a long way at the candy store. But it was drilled and ingrained in me as, as a young person that part of following Jesus, part of being a follower of Christ, 
is that we participate in this act, this habit of tithing. And again, I am so grateful that 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 was instilled in me as a value and part of this, this faith. But as I was getting ready for this Sunday, it's not that I think tithing is wrong or bad. Don't hear me say that at all. But as I was thinking about it, I started to feel like tithing is maybe incomplete. And maybe that's even uncomfortable to say in church. But that's what I want to spend some time thinking about and talking about this morning. We're going to use a passage out of the book of Matthew. If you're familiar with the Bible, uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's one of four books that we call Gospels, which is really the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the story of Jesus. And Matthew was actually one of Jesus' disciples. So for years, Matthew followed Jesus around, and a lot of the things that Matthew writes about are things that he saw with his own eyes or heard with his own ears. But he didn't write it down at the time. In fact, uh, for about 30 to 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, these stories were kept alive orally. So as people were sitting down for dinner, they would tell these stories of Jesus, or as they're walking somewhere, they would tell these stories of Jesus. And after about 30 to 40 years, Matthew decided that he was going to create an account of this. And so he collected all of these different stories and put them together into this document, what we call the Gospel of Matthew. But as Matthew was collecting these stories, he seemed to have three focuses Three things that his stories were constantly pointing towards. The first one, his first big idea, was that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem all of creation. Jesus was the Messiah. The second thing was that Jesus was the new Moses. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. So Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the new Moses. And finally, Jesus was God with us. The Hebrew word Emmanuel. Messiah, new Moses. Emmanuel, God with us. And so all of these stories for Matthew seem to point to those three big ideas. And kind of as a side note, I think it's helpful as we read, whether we're in the book of Matthew or any other, any other book, to ask ourselves, why, w- why was that included? Because what I would imagine is Jesus was alive here on earth for 33 years, but even his ministry was three years. And even in that three years, there's no way that everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said fits into these four Gospels. That Jesus must have said other things and done other things that were great and, and, and powerful. And so why, for Matthew, were these the stories that were important to pass down for generations? Or maybe better yet, the question should be, what are these stories had to teach us about the character of God and the nature of God's people. And so with that in the back of our minds, I want to jump in to our text this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 19. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And these are Jesus' words. And Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I want to pause there for a second. You know, a lot of times when we're reading scripture, it's hard for us to really understand right away the context because these were written thousands of years ago to a a people who were completely different than us. 
You know, we, we read this in 2021, uh, and our experiences, the way that we see the world, the world that we live in, is vastly different than this first century audience. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of work to try to figure out, okay, what is actually being said? And to a degree, that's happening here. When Jesus is talking about storing up treasures, he literally means in a storehouse. I mean, we've got grains and textiles. There was no bank accounts or 401ks or Bitcoin or whatever it is nowadays. But what does transcend this time is Jesus seems to be making a distinction between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. That there is this distinction, that there are earthly treasures which can be lost or ruined, stolen, destroyed. And yet, there are heavenly treasures that can't be lost, that no one can take away, that can't be destroyed. And Jesus is making here this distinction between the two. He goes on to say in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a truth and a piece of wisdom that applies to all of us. Again, this isn't just for Christians. If you're a non-Christian tuning in or here in person, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is true for every single one of us. That the way we view and see things, our treasure is an indicator of our heart. And so the question then for us who do claim Christ is, is there a deeper calling as it relates to our treasure and the posture of our heart? Continuing on in verse 22, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, in first century, there was this this fascination and fixation with the eye. Uh, One, physically, they they were curious. You know, they didn't have all of the equipment that we have nowadays. So there was a curiosity in how does the eye work? You know, light seems to be coming in the eye and its process and our brains, you know, all that stuff. How does the eye actually work? But also, they were curious and had a lot of conversation about what did an eye mean? What did it stand for? And, and one of the things that they would talk about is the eye being the thing that stood for direction and trajectory, the thing that set uh, the, 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 the place you were going to go. And, and that's true for us. You know, like if I want to walk this way, it's better if I'm looking that way than if I'm looking behind me and I, I trip over something or stumble off the platform or run into a wall. But in a, in a metaphorical way, what they use the eye for is the thing that set where you were headed, the thing that set that trajectory. And he goes on to say, if your eye is healthy, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. You know, what's interesting is, is this word healthy here doesn't have anything to do with how good your eyes are. It has nothing to do with your vision. It's a Greek word that speaks to a singular focus, a singular intent, a singular purpose. And so what we see Jesus saying here, as it relates to our treasures, is that as we have the singular focus, as we are, we are, our lives are organized and reorganized in Christ, that the way that we see and view all things, including our treasure, including our stuff, 
has this singular focus towards Jesus. I think it might be helpful for us uh, in understanding this to understand the Sermon on the Mount a little bit better. This is this, this are, these are words that Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, I think it would be helpful for us to go all the way back pretty much to the beginning to understand the story of Moses. See, we all have these things in our lives that I'll call origin stories, family stories, things that shape us and things that tell the story of how we got to where we are today. Your families undoubtedly have these in some way. Maybe it was a story of a big promotion and a, and a moving across the state or across the country for this job promotion. Maybe it was the death of someone significant in your family. Maybe it was a marriage or a divorce or something that happened and your family can point back to that and look at that experience, look at that big rock moment and know that there was, there was this change and something that, that event shaped your family in a way. We have these as a nation. For some of you who are older than me, you probably can remember exactly where you were when you found out that JFK was assassinated or that we landed on the moon. I remember where I was sitting on 9-11 and I remember that day so vividly. Years from now, we'll see pictures of people wearing masks and be like, someone will ask, what, what was that about? And we'll tell them this story about 2020 and 2021 and how that has shaped our, our nation and our globe. That was a big rock moment. If you've been at Central for a while, you probably remember where you were when you got the call that this building was burning to the ground. And maybe you got in your car and you drove and you sat in the parking lot and you watched this building burn. That was a moment for this church in its past that was shaping and formational. That was a family origin story. Well, for these people who are listening to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the story of Moses would have been one of those origin stories for them. It would have been a story that they knew and told very well. And so Matthew talks about this idea of Jesus being the new Moses. But what does that really mean? Well, way back in the beginning of Scripture, God forms this people, Israel, who are to be a people, a unique people, that will be a blessing, not just this exclusive group, but this group that will be a blessing to the entire world, that the entire world would come to know God through this group of people. But ultimately, this group of people ends up enslaved in Egypt. And so God raises up this leader, Moses, who is this leader and teacher. And God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, out of captivity. And ultimately, God uses Moses to set up this this covenantal relationship to form these people. And we see all of these parallels between Moses and Jesus, how we get the name New Moses. That Moses and Jesus both come out of Egypt. Remember, after Jesus was born, they fled, and his family fled to Egypt, where he, he grew up for several years. Both Moses and Jesus passed through the waters. For Moses, that was through the Red Sea. For Jesus, that was baptism in the Jordan River. And after passing through the water, Moses spends 40 years wandering through the wilderness with the Israelites. And after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. That we have all of these connections, these parallels, 
But Jesus is said to be the new Moses, the greater Moses, someone who would free people from their slavery, save them from their sins, and ultimately establish this new covenant with God, be the one who fulfilled this covenant uh, between man and God. That was Jesus. But one of the stories that Moses is known for is going up on Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. Not too long ago, we did a whole series here about the Ten Commandments. And we talked about those Ten Commandments, not as this, uh, this list of rules that you need to obey in order to be saved. The Ten Commandments aren't a means of salvation. It's a product of our salvation. God was trying to form this unique people to be a blessing to the world. And so God said, this is the way that my family lives. These are my family rules. This is how you are going to be a unique people so that you can be a blessing. And in that same way, but maybe even greater, Jesus goes up on the mountain, Sermon on the Mount, and delivers this new family rules. That if you want to claim Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This wasn't just a sermon that meant to inspire people or to make people say, wow, Jesus, I mean, he's a really good preacher. But this Sermon on the Mount was the new order for how they were going to live their lives, how their existence was going to be shaped, what they were going to be known for. It was more than just what they were going to do. It was who they were going to be. That in Jesus, every area of our lives is reordered and reorganized through Christ. And so as this relates to these verses, treasure, thinking about treasure and focus, What Jesus is saying is just like every other area of our lives, when we are followers of Christ, our lives are reordered, our treasure, the way we view and think and interact with our stuff is reorganized and reordered in Christ. That for Jesus' followers, the focus is on orientation, not accumulation. Orientation not accumulation. Let me explain that. that. That's not about how much or how little we can accumulate. But it's about the orientation, the posture of our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That our hearts and lives are reoriented in Christ. So what does this mean for tithing? How does it all kind of come together in that sense? Again, like I said, I think tithing is an important habit for us. It is that habit that reminds us that God is a giver of good things and everything we have comes from God. And so we simply give back to God what is already his. But as I was thinking about the series, practices, how are we formed into the image of Christ, the question that I had and what challenged me this week, what the Lord spoke to me was this question of, well, is that it? Is that it? This week I had a chance to watch one of our students play basketball. Uh, He plays for Carmen, and as I was at Mason's game, what I noticed is this dude never went out of the game. He played every second, every minute of the entire game. And I was watching Mason play, and I was kind of thinking about this sermon in the back of my mind. And I wondered, in how many timeouts did Mason's coach say, hey, Mason, Mason, I need you to give me 10%. What? No, like we're in the middle of March Madness and we have these college men and women who are competing and what are their coaches asking for? Give me everything you've got. Give me 100%. Give me 110%. 
See, how the Lord was challenging me this week is if you want to know my trust in God, if you want to know the depths of my faith and my spirituality, you can't just look at my 10%. You need to look at my 90%. How do I see and view and interact and relate to that 90%, my house and cars and all that stuff? Or better yet, maybe the question is, what does the way that I view and interact with my 90% reveal about the posture of my heart? It's the same idea that you can't look at the three hours I'm here on a Sunday morning if you want to see the true aspect, the authenticity of my faith. You need to see how I live on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. That you can't just look at 10% of my life and get that. You need to see the other 90%. See, this, this Sermon on the Mount, but the life of Jesus as a whole is this invitation for us to come with our full selves. It's this invitation for us to not hold anything back, but to offer and surrender all that we have and all that we are to the ways of Christ. That everything in our lives, our treasure, our stuff, our money, but also our gifts and our passions and our time and our energy, all of that is reoriented in Christ. That Christ sets a new purpose, a new agenda, a new priority that takes over every aspect of our lives. As I was preparing for this morning, I was sharing some of this stuff with my wife and kind of letting her give me some, some thoughts on, on things. And she shared this story with me. Before we were married, uh, she was living down in Illinois, and she was a small group leader at that church for first grade girls. She was a small group leader for first grade girls, and one of the things they were doing in one of their series is they were talking about how their faith uh, calls them to act, to do things. And they started talking about how the brothers and sisters in different countries were, were experiencing sickness and even death from malaria because of mosquito bites. And how for just a dollar, they could buy mosquito nets and send them to these brothers and sisters as a way of caring and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they challenged this small group. Okay, hey, this week, why don't you try to raise some money? We're going to see how many nets we can buy. You know, collect some pop cans or, or, or do some extra chores so that we can collect some money uh, so we can buy these nets and send them to our brothers and sisters. The next week, the next week, a mom showed up. And she came to Lauren and she said, Lauren, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you, but her daughter... Her name was Kenley. She's been, she's been so inspired by this. And I've tried to talk her out of it, Lauren. I've tried, I tried to convince her that she doesn't have to do this. But she wants to give all of the money she's had for her entire life to buy nets and send them overseas. And I've tried to tell her, Lauren, that you don't have to give all of it. You can give some of it. But there was no talking her out of it. She was set on this. And so little first grade Kenley emptied her piggy bank and gave all $500 she had to her name. I, I admit, I, I heard that story and I, I kind of had two thoughts. The first thing I thought was, 
Oh, that's a cute story. That's a cute story of someone who obviously doesn't have a mortgage to pay or rent to pay or car insurance to pay for. It's a cute story of someone who hasn't really understood how money works yet. But then I heard Jesus' words from later on in the Gospel of Matthew, reminding us that unless we have faith like a child, we cannot experience the kingdom of heaven. What are you saying? That we have to come next week and give all of, our, all of our savings, all of our money? We have to turn all of that in? Actually, I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. See, a lot of times when we hear a sermon, we want to know, okay, what do you want me to do this week? What am I supposed to do this week? But this text, this invitation, this call is not prescriptive. It doesn't prescribe like medicine what you're supposed to do exactly. But it's descriptive. It describes this way of being. It describes this new life. And so the question for us today is what would it look like in our lives, in your lives, for us as a church, if we didn't hold anything back, but we presented our full selves? What would it look like in our lives to have our lives reorganized and reoriented, to have the posture of our hearts transformed through Christ. One of the translations of, of verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart follows. I, I want my treasure to be an indicator that I'm all in, that I'm not holding anything back that I will give my all to a God who gave his all. That I surrender. See, in the Church of the Nazarene, we have this fancy word. We call it entire sanctification. Let me, in, let me let you in on a little secret. That's just a fancy word that means, God, you can have it all. That I turn over every corner of my life to you. I surrender everything I am and everything I have over to your way, that I'm not holding anything back. That the God who sees and loves you wants to transform your life, your stuff, our treasures, but also your time and your passions and your energy. That it's an invitation to present our whole selves to the God who loves you to not hold anything back.